compassionate to our hearts and enable us, Father, to love it, to cherish it, to live it out, to obey it. Father, open our eyes by your illumination. And I pray that you would enable me to faithfully preach your word and each one of us to hear it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 6. This is the infallible, inerrant Word of God written for our edification, for our joy. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> As I mentioned earlier, I uh, went to the John Piper uh, conference this past week, and uh, they had a huge, huge book room. It was incredible. Hundreds of authors that were spread out. Uh, they're cream of the crop, and there's a, a lot of great books there. And, of course, Piper's got his books strewn all over and all of his uh, audio tapes. And I was kind of humored by the fact that almost all of his books seem to have the same theme, but it's a different subject, but it's always the same theme of joy and taking pleasure uh, in the Lord. Uh, there were titles like The Legacy of Sovereign Joy, Let the Nations Be Glad, Seeing and Savoring uh, Jesus Christ, uh, Desiring God, and then the sequel to that, uh, When You Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy, and Glenn was joking, he needs to have another sequel that says, When You Don't Desire to Fight for Joy. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I could go on and on. We love Piper's books, though, and we really strongly recommend that uh, you read some of his stuff. And he is just marvelous in the way in which he can take even the painful events of life and show a twist on it where God desires even those painful events to draw us to him as the good God who loves to pour out his goodness in our lives. Now, fasting, for example, his book on fasting is Hungering for God. And you look at fasting from that perspective, I mean, nobody likes fasting, right? I mean, it makes your body weak and trembling. And yet you look at it in the perspective of hungering for God, and it, it does give an underlying perspective and joy on that. And I think he needs to write a book uh, and title it, uh, Finding Joy in God's Painful Disciplines. Uh, Hebrews 12 says that's really a perspective that we need to have on the disciplines that the Lord uh, brings into our lives uh, it tells us in very strong language, don't buck against God's disciplines. And uh, don't fail to benefit from His uh, discipline. So many times uh, we allow the painful events that God brings into our lives to make us grumble and even more sinful rather than driving us back to the Lord. And He says, when you do that, it's going to rob you of your joy. And we're going to look uh, today at this Psalm, 12 mistakes, 12 misconceptions that Christians can easily have that can rob them of their joy in the Lord, and each one of those implies 12 uh, spiritual 
perspectives on life that can enable us to have faith and hope and encouragement and yes even joy in the midst of our weeping and we'll be seeing how that is uh, how that is possible uh, uh, in the sermon okay the first mistake that uh, we tend to make is uh, when life is going wrong and uh, we're getting beat up and uh, we're losing finances and this and that happens we begin to doubt whether God loves us and that is such a common theme and yet I want you to look at the inspired title of this psalm now we've got uninspired titles at the top like uh, New King James just puts in there a prayer of faith in times of despair that's not inspired but the next one down there are those titles that are immediately before uh, some of the psalms uh, I think are part of the inspired text so it says here to the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp. Now it tells us who is this guy that's being disciplined. It's a psalm of David. Now, if you ever begin to have worries, you know, that because everything's going wrong in life and you're getting beat up on that the Lord doesn't love you, just remember David. Over and over again, the scripture says that God loved David. His loving kindness rested upon him. He made this everlasting covenant with David. Why? Because his love was with David. He was a man after God's own heart, and it was precisely because he was a man after God's own heart that the Lord brought discipline uh, into his life. Uh, Hebrews 12 tells us, Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now put that in modern uh, English. Whom the lo Lord loves, he disciplines and he whips or he spanks everyone whom he receives that was a verse that shook, shook my life up turned my world upside down in 12th grade now I don't know if that was the year that I was converted or that was just the year that the Lord brought assurance into my heart uh, my parents think I was converted much earlier and that may be but I know that prior to that year I never had assurance of my salvation I constantly doubted whether the Lord loved me whether I was a son of his and after that I had a deep settled uh, assurance of, of my sonship. And I remember reading the verse and questioning, man, could I be a believer? Could I be a son? Because this is everybody whom, every son whom the Lord receives, he chastens. And I couldn't think of any chastening in my life despite the fact that even then I was living in deliberate rebellion against the Lord. Now, other outwardly people maybe wouldn't have recognized it, but I knew that I was sinning against God. And uh, that night, the Lord did a powerful work in my heart and brought me to the place where I said, Lord, if you send me to hell, you are perfectly just and you are glorified in sending me to hell. But Lord, I want to be saved from my sin. I no longer just want to be saved from hell. I want to be saved from my sin and I pray that you would do a work within me and change me. Now, whatever the status was of my life, I remember the next day, that the Lord prompted me to do something and I refused to do it because of my fear. I was an incredibly shy person. It was actually a prompting to witness. And the Lord brought an immediate discipline into my life. In fact, it was the whole side of my body was paralyzed. I saw my, looked in the mirror and my, uh, you know, cheeks and everything drooping down. It scared the daylights out of me. And I said, okay, Lord, okay, I'll do it, you know. But I remember what that did in my life. I wasn't focused on the scariness of the discipline, though that was there as well. What happened to me is I was overjoyed. I was filled with incredible joy <laughs> that the Lord loved me, that he had accepted me as his son. And so when I say, you know, Piper ought to write a book that says, you know, uh, joy at God's disciplines in our lives, I meant that very literally. 
Uh, because discipline, when we discipline our children, it is a sign that we love them, we care about them, we don't want them to turn out badly. And uh, I think it was Edzo who wrote uh, in, in one of his books that there's been research that's done on children who don't receive consistent discipline in their lives. And he said they lack a security in their lives. Eventually they lack that. And so it brought an incredible joy into my heart. And so if, if things have been going tough on you, and some of you guys have gone through incredible toughness, don't doubt God's love for you. Realize that whom the Lord loves, he chastens and disciplines every son uh, whom he receives. Now, there's another misconception that Christians many times have, and that is that God never gets angry with us. One of the uh, songs that we sang earlier talked about the Lord's uh, anger uh, uh, burning. But I have talked to so many uh, people, Reformed and non-Reformed, who think, no, God only gets angry with unbelievers. He doesn't get angry with believers. That's completely covered. Well, that's nonsense. David knew differently, and he was grieved with the knowledge that God had gotten hot under the collar with him. Take a look at uh, verse 1 and how he words it. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. He knows God sometimes has a hot displeasure with his sons and daughters. Even with the best of sons, he sometimes gets angry. He got angry with Moses. Uh, in, in Exodus 4.14, it says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. He got angry at Miriam when Miriam resisted Moses' authority. He got angry at Aaron for the same reason. In uh, 1 Kings 11.9, it says, God got angry with Solomon. So don't tell me God does not get angry. He does. He's a person. And as a person, he gets upset when people rebel against his word and rebel against what would be in their best interests. And it was in knowing that God got angry that it motivated David to, to forsake his sin and his rebellion. I think this is a practical doctrine. We need to meditate on all of the attributes of God, including his anger and his wrath. His anger and his wrath, they don't just uh, uh, flame against those who are unbelievers, but sometimes they flame against us when we are in rebellion against the Lord. And so it's a practical doctrine. David immediately says, Oh, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Uh, some evangelicals will say, well, how in the world could I enjoy God if I know that he's angry with me? Well, you enjoy God by glorifying him, right? And you glorify him by enjoying him. You can't separate those two. They really belong together. And so the way in which we quickly enter into joy is by quickly repenting when we know that the Lord is angry against us. Now that brings up a third misconception. The third misconception is that God never takes us to the woodshed for discipline. Now, we probably need a new modern metaphor for that, but taking you to the woodshed in the olden days when they had wood-burning stoves, you know, they'd store all the wood outside. And if a dad wanted to discipline his son or his daughter uh, privately, would take him out to the woodshed and administer the rod to that child. And so that becomes a metaphor then for discipline. And God taking us to the woodshed means God is bringing difficult, painful events into our lives. And there are some people that absolutely question that. They think that God uh, does not do that. But look at verse 2. It appears that God had brought some kind of a disease into his life as well as some enemies later on in the psalm. But verse 2, it says there, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. And so he received discipline. Hebrews 12 guarantees 
that you will receive it if you are a child. It says, but if you are without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Verse 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now that is so clear, and it's stated so many times in the scriptures, that when I was listening to the radio and I heard Bob George affirming so strongly that God never chastens his children, never disciplines them, I was just flabbergasted. I went, where in the world did I get that? And then I realized, you know, we don't have the messed up theology that he does. We believe that God chastens us. And yet in practical terms, we fall into exactly the same error because we act as if God does not discipline us. We think we can get away with uh, our bad behavior and God's just going to turn a blind eye. He's going to sweep it under a carpet. He's not really going to deal with it. And so even though we don't have the intellectual theology, our practice is living that theology uh, many times. One of the principles of good parenting is that there needs to be consistent discipline when there is disobedience, right? And um, God is a good parent. He is consistent when there is uh, rebellion. People in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they didn't recognize that God had been disciplining them, and yet Paul tells them, indeed, he was. He says that there were uh, people there that were weak. Uh, there were people there that were sick. He said, many of you have even died because of the Lord's discipline. Now, that word many seems to indicate that uh, this was not just an infrequent thing. This had happened frequently. Many of these people did not recognize God's hand of discipline in their lives. Uh, God guarantees if you're a child, when you sin, there's going to be a consistent repercussion in your lives. When you break the Sabbath, I guarantee you that you will not get away with it. I guarantee it. There has been already some discipline in your lives if you have broken the Sabbath. Uh, it may be... Uh, that you lack success at work, lack success at home, maybe aches and pains, backed up sewer, maybe sickness. It may be ache, uh, headaches or something like that. By the way, not all sickness is discipline. I have a paper that, that speaks about, uh, I think, 21 different reasons, discipline just being one of those. But this morning, I'm not going to give you any balance whatsoever. I'm just going to deal with the discipline aspect because we tend to ignore it. We tend to think that the Lord doesn't uh, do this to us. And I should say as well that we, the Lord does not discipline us for unknown sins. Just like, you know, we don't discipline our children for infractions. They didn't know that that was a, a, a rule. What we discipline them is rebellion. What is rebellion? It's not just shaking the fist in your face. It's even sweetly disobeying uh, something they know to be a, a right rule or they are doing something they know to be wrong. That's automatically rebellion. It needs to be disciplined. And uh, so uh, one of the things I want to encourage you to think about, if you've had regular sins, you know what you're doing is wrong and you are not getting disciplined, you need to go to the Lord in fear and ask, Lord, am I a son? Do you not love me? Why have I not been disciplined? And maybe you're just failing to recognize providences. Um, one of the books that really drew this out to me was... Um, uh, Bradford, is it, is it William Bradford, his Plymouth uh, Plantation book? Anyway, it's a history of the Plymouth Plantation. It's just marvelous. As you read through that, you see how these, these pilgrims were so sensitive to God's providences in, in, uh, in confessing their sins and saying, Lord, is there something you're disciplining us for when their crops didn't come in right or, or this or that, even the small things in life, and praising the Lord for his control in their lives. It brought them great joy, just as it brought me great joy 
in 12th grade to realize my father is a disciplining father. He loves me. He cares for me. He doesn't want me to be going off uh, into error. And so God is a good parent, and therefore he's a consistent disciplinarian, he's a loving disciplinarian, and he always demands first-time obedience. That's so clear in the scripture. Now, some people question this because they read the prophets and they will see the prophets giving warning, 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 and finally God gets fed up and he casts them out into exile. That's a total misreading of the prophets. Uh, the way they read it is God nags and nags. Come on, son, you got to do it. And the kid doesn't do it. Come on, you got to do it. Do it, do it, you know, start screaming. And finally, they blow up and go out. That's not how God deals. These prophets, if you read them, you say to them, God has already brought discipline into your lives. Like uh, in one of the prophets, I think, he, uh, the people were complaining that they couldn't tithe. And he says, you know why you, you don't have the money? He says, it's because you haven't been tithing. I've been cursing your products. I've been cursing this and that. God's discipline has already been there. And so the prophet says, now I'm warning you, God's going to increase the discipline if you don't repent. They don't repent. He increases the discipline. Then he says, I'm warning you, if you don't repent, there's going to be increased discipline. Uh, with our children, you know, the first time infraction, one whack. Of course, it's a whack with a, a nice, nice uh, stick that one whack is about all they need. It hurts, you know. And uh, they know it's going to be two whacks if uh, they continue their behavior. Then it'll increase to three whacks and four and uh, pretty soon they get the idea. God is consistent. He demands first-time obedience. You don't have to yell. You don't have to do anything. This is the way God deals with us. And so I want to ask you again. If you have been sinning in this past week, God's a consistent disciplinarian. He demands first-time obedience. And if you cannot think of any disciplines in your life, you've got a problem. You need to go to the Lord and ask, Lord, am I a son? I want you as my father. I want your disciplines in my life. And so I think this is a, a thing we need to look at in terms of self-examination. Fourth misconception is thinking that we don't need to ask God for mercy. Now, one radio uh, program on KCRO said the child seeking for mercy is a ludicrous idea. Only the unregenerate need mercy. Um, and yet David is a child of God, and he says in verse 2, Have mercy on me, O Lord. And then in verse 4, he pleads for God's mercy's sake. Now, I think most of us recognize what God's mercies look like, you know, when it comes to an unbeliever becoming a Christian because mercy means now they are saved, they're never going to have to face hellfire again, right? That is an incredible mercy. It's something we rejoice in. God no longer treats us as sons of, of Satan, sons and daughters, but he treats us as those who have been adopted into his family. What incredible mercies the Lord has bestowed. But what the scripture goes on to say is even though we will never have to fear hell again, we're never going to have to fear being cast out of his family as sons and daughters. As a child, we do have the privilege of asking for mercy. What is that? What is that mercy that we're asking for? Well, I believe it is a lessening of the discipline that God brings into our lives. Now, God's never going to say, okay, I'm going to have mercy. I'm not going to discipline you. Discipline always follows disobedience, and it should in a parent's life as well. When there's rebellion, there has to be discipline. But asking for mercy is uh, instead of four whacks, you're getting two whacks, right? Or you're getting one whack. Uh, it's a lessening of the punishment uh, that the Lord brings into our lives. And, and that's what he's asking for in verse 2. He knows from experience that when he 
aligns himself quickly. He quickly repents. He comes to the Lord, and the Lord can see the sorrow in his heart that the Lord reduces significantly the amount of discipline that he has because he's not continuing in his rebellion. Uh, let me try to illustrate this, and I've given this uh, illustration to you before. But uh, when I was in boarding school in Ethiopia, one time I walked up into the dormitory and we, um, ninth and 10th graders, we got to sleep over top of the barn in the, in the attic there. And so we didn't have a lot of supervision. And I was walking up the steps and some of the guys up there had already been fooling around with the electricity. They'd stick the, the, the wires together, turn the switch and watch the sparks. It's really boring, you know. We didn't have toys, we didn't have a lot of stuff out there. So we made up our own stuff. And I didn't know they had been doing this. I came up the stairs and they said, hey, kiss, come over here and switch the switch. And so like an idiot, I didn't ask any questions. I said, okay, and switched the switch and I didn't turn it back off again. I switched it and to my horror, I saw this stream of smoke going along and it was going out the window. I looked out the window and the transformer went up in a ball of flames. And I said, oh boy, am I in deep trouble. But uh, being responsible like I was, I ran up to the dorm parents and told them what I had done and took the full blame for that. And they punished me by making me dig out stumps for six months. Now, I was a little bit gratified that the guys felt guilty that they weren't uh, at all implicated in this. And so they and some of the gals would come down and talk to me. They didn't help me any, but <laughs> they at least watched, you know, and tried to encourage me from time to time. Now, here, here, here's the thing. If... If I had gone after three months to the dorm parents and said, you know, can I have some mercy because I really did not intend this. I didn't even know what was happening. Turned the switch and I, I turned it and I've already dug stumps for three months. Uh, could I have a lessening of this punishment and have some mercy? Uh, you know, who knows? Maybe they would have done it. Uh, that would have been appropriate. But all I was thinking about was justice. I wasn't thinking about mercy. In fact, Scott and I, we're talking um, yesterday after the uh, men's um, uh, uh, Bible study, and uh, he's got a pastor friend who's a five-point Calvinist, and he had the reputation of being uh, a mercy freak uh, because he always talked about the mercies of the Lord. He said, I don't want God's justice. I want his mercy, you know? And I think, uh, I think Reformed people ought to have mercy heightened in their minds as being something that we glory in. Not being angry people, always seeking for justice, but being people who say, yes, not only do I glory in mercy, but I glory when God gives mercy uh, to his enemies and he gives it to other people. And so uh, digging out stumps for six months, okay, that's justice. Uh, digging them out for only three months or two months, that would be mercy. And that's what he's asking for when he says, have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? He's saying, in effect, Lord, I've been digging stumps for three months and I've learned my lesson. I really have. Please, since I've learned, could you reduce your sentence upon me? Okay, next, I'd like to look at how we plead for mercy. Because if we don't have a clear sense of what justice is between a father and a son in this situation, then how we ask for mercy uh, uh, can be mistaken as well. I think some people are so used to talking about mercy and asking for mercy. It's, you know, just a matter of fact type of a thing, just like you'd be asking to pass the potatoes and gravy. You know, Lord, have, have mercy upon my sins. And if you look at verses 1 through 7, you see David did not take that kind of an attitude. He did not take mercy for granted. He did not take it lightly. And this is the, the fifth point. 
Out in Ethiopia, there were two kinds of beggars. Uh, there were beggars who had become beggars because of misfortune that had happened in their lives. Maybe their parents had died. And if you had offered them the opportunity to get out of their lifestyle, they would have loved nothing better. And then there were professional beggars, another class of beggars who, if you offered them a job or you offered them some way of getting out of the, they'd laugh at you. They didn't want that. They want a handout. They're, they're planning on remaining beggars uh, for the rest of their lives. And they passed it on from generation to generation. And so when they were begging, you know, in the name of St. Georg, you know, or uh, uh, St. Maria's, uh, the ones they usually uh, begged in the name of, and you offered them a job and say, yeah, for the next year, why don't you have a shovel here? They would not, that would be real mercy, wouldn't it? To be offering them a job. And they, they, they wouldn't take it. Uh, they'd spit on you rather than take it. They would not uh, receive that at all. And I think many evangelicals have become professional beggars when it comes to asking for mercy. And the reason I say that is because these evangelicals, you know, they ask for uh, the Lord's forgiveness because, you know, their conscience feels a little bit guilty. They don't want to feel uncomfortable. But they have no intention of leaving their profession of begging, right? They have no intention of leaving the rags of their sins. They just want to continue on in, in their sinning uh, month after month, year after year. They love their sin. They just don't like their guilty consciences. And so what's happened is that the doctrine of mercy has been a convenient excuse to stay in the rags of their sins. If you're in that situation, you're in deep trouble. If you're a son, you've you got heaps of uh, discipline that the Lord has been already administering in your life. If you're not a son, uh, it's an indication that your heart is not right before the Lord because our desire should be to hate our sin, to flee from our sin, and to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8 makes clear, David does not want to cling to his sins while he's pleading for his mercy. Uh, the Proverbs say that uh, the, the person that the Lord honors is the person who confesses his sin and forsakes it, right? And forsakes it. And that's the only way we're going to have joy is if we get out of our profession of begging. The Lord wants us to have a whole life. He wants us to have a joyful life, a fulfilled life. And the only way we can have that is as we quickly repent. Now, misconception six is to think that we can demand mercy as a right. Now, if mercy is a right, it, uh, it's no longer mercy. The very definition of mercy means God is not administering the discipline that we deserve. But it's not something that uh, we can demand. One writer worded it this way. Mercy is sovereign or it is not mercy. By sovereign, it means God can administer it or he cannot give it. Okay, it's not sovereign if uh, he has to give it, but it's totally up to him. Mercy is sovereign or it is not mercy, he says. Mercy that is owed or obligated is not mercy, it is justice. Mercy is sheer, sovereignly bestowed favor on those in trouble who have forfeited any claim on God's goodness by sin. And so David does not see it as a right. It's, he sees it as something that he humbly pleads for. And in verse 5, he admits that God has the perfect right to take that discipline all the way to death if God should so choose. We cannot have the attitude that God is unfair toward us, that, uh, you know, we're getting far more than what's our, 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 our due desserts. No, we have to ask God to replace justice with mercy. 
and uh, not to uh, be demanding. This conception number seven is that we must ask for mercy thinking that we must ask for mercy when there is no need for mercy. Now, this is the other side of the coin. Um, we may not be aware of any sin whatsoever in our lives, but asking for mercy is if uh, uh, the Lord is angry. Uh, let me just think about it from this, this perspective. Wouldn't it trouble you a little bit if every time your kids wanted to cuddle in your lap, or you wanted them to cuddle in your lap, come here, son. He said, oh, have mercy on me, you know. And they're just so fearful of coming to your lap. You would think, oh, boy, there's something wrong here in our relationship, right? And I think it's the same in our relationship with the Father. If we do not have that, um, that confidence of our relationship with God when we are, uh, you know, we think we're in right relationship with Him, we cannot think of any sin, but to constantly be pleading for mercy is to fail to take advantage of the incredible sonship privileges that we have, the joy of fellowship that we have with him. Now, let me use the beggar illustration again. Out in Ethiopia, I had a little uh, a friend that when he was growing up, uh, used to beg in the streets of Jimma, which is the second, I think it's the second biggest uh, uh, city in, in Ethiopia. And uh, he had to do that in order to survive. And uh, one time he showed me how he did his begging. In just a couple of minutes, he transformed himself into one of the most pitiful looking creatures you have ever seen. He turned all four eyelids inside out. And so instead of eyes, it looked like he had no eyeballs, just red holes in his eyes. And then he hunched his back and he twisted his leg around so it looked like he was crippled. And then he would say, St. Marion, St. Georg, you know, and he would be begging for money. And it was all a show, you know. He didn't need any mercy, but he was asking for mercy, right? And we should not be asking for mercy all of the time from the Lord if we don't sense or see the sins that the Lord, especially if we've been uh, confessed up. And here's the situation that I see sometimes. People will ask for mercy, and then if you ask them, okay, now, what is, it, what is the specific sin that you're asking God to be merciful to you on? They'll give you a blank stare and, I don't know. <laughs> That's just why well, I know I must be a sinner, but I can't think of any sin. Well, God disciplines us for specific sins, right? He doesn't discipline us for things that we are ignorant of. It's only for the rebellion against what we know to be right. And uh, ignorance can be disciplined if it's a willful ignorance. Here's willful ignorance. It says, uh, I'm not going to read the scripture on that because uh, I don't want to know. It might tell me I have to change, right? That's willful ignorance. God will discipline for that. But that's a specific sin. And so if there aren't specifics, you don't need to ask for mercy. You already have his mercy. You're living in his mercy. And he's going to usher you into and continue his fellowship with you. Now, let's look at the eighth misconception. Some Christians think that because of salvation, they cannot break fellowship with God. And I have seen this uh, uh, so frequently as well. But look at verse 4. David knows that's not true. He says, return, O Lord. What does that imply? That God's left, right? Return, O Lord, deliver me. He asks God to return because he has so keenly sensed God's abandonment of him, as it were. He doesn't feel the fellowship. There's a break in fellowship uh, that is there. And some of David's psalms go on for several verses, feeling so keenly the loss of fellowship, the sweetness and joy of fellowship that he had experienced before. Now, here's where discipline is such a joyous thing. 
uh, when we uh, brought the rod to our children beforehand, we would talk through the sin and make sure that there was repentance. There was still the administration of the rod, but you know what happened immediately after the rod? The children wanted to come and to be hugged and to be held and to be affirmed, and so it immediately restores that fellowship. I believe that's the way it is with the Lord as well. He doesn't put us in the doghouse for months and months on end. What he does is when he brings that discipline into our lives, when we repent, when we run to him to be hugged, the Lord says, you're forgiven. And the relationship is restored. And so repentance ushers us immediately into the joy of restored fellowship. But the point of this uh, point here is don't believe it when people say you can never have broken fellowship with God. You can Nothing can separate us from God's love, but there's plenty of things can separate you from his fellowship. And you need to uh, long for that fellowship to be restored. Okay, ninth misconception is thinking that God would never judge Christians with death. Now, this is a controversial one here. But uh, verse 5 hints at David's fear that God will take the discipline that far. And sometimes God has to do that. Remember 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Let me read it from the NIV. Here's how it words it. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many are dead. Many are dead. This was not just an unusual, strange thing. If there were many rebels in that uh, congregation that were persevering in that rebellion, he said many of them became dead precisely because God's disciplines were not producing their work in their lives. And he says, I'll take you out. You're of no use to me here on earth. I'll take you out. Physical death. 1 John 5, 16 says that true brothers can cross over the line and be struck down by God. Let me read that for you. They do not lose their eternal salvation, but they do lose their physical lives. He says, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. In other words, if you've already crossed that line, all the prayers in the world are not going to help that person. He's going to be taken out. So he says, there is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. And so I think that's what David is concerned about. Look at verses 4 through 5. Return, O Lord, deliver me. Oh, save me for your mercy's sake. For in death, there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? What's he saying? The Lord's mercy is that he's going to spare him from the discipline of death, which, by the way, is going to... What, what did Paul say to the person who was being excommunicated in, in 1 Corinthians? He was being handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of judgment. And so there's another example of, uh, death, uh, of death being uh, brought. Now, the knowledge of that, I think, can spare us a lot of agony. And the knowledge that the Lord does this can spare our children a lot of agony. In uh, Proverbs, it says that when we consistently discipline our children, we are saving our children's lives from Sheol, the place of the dead. Okay? So it's very literally true. If you fail to discipline your children, eventually, if they're true believers, eventually God may have to take them out. Because God's going to, once he's passed your disciplines, God takes over. It's the same in the church. Churches that refuse to discipline their members, uh, it's showing a lack of love to those members, but it also connects with the Lord's discipline. So anyway, that, that would take me far afield, but uh, do not think that God cannot take a Christian's life out. 
He can do it, and I think he does it just as much in the 20th century as he did uh, back in the first century. Okay, the tenth misconception is thinking that true repentance can take place without grief over sin. Now, this is a very common error, uh, even in Reformed circles, but 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow produces repentance. Okay? If you don't have sorrow, you don't have repentance. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Uh, many times Christians <clears throat> are not grieved over their sins at all, uh, but grief over sin and hatred over sin is a key to a shortened time of discipline and entering into that joy that the Lord has for us. Uh, look at verses 6 through 7. I'm weary with my groaning all night. I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Now, be honest with yourselves. Is that the reaction that you have to your own sins? And later we're going to be talking about to the sins of others. Or does sin really not bother you? Just something, oh, God, take care of it. Don't worry about it. What is your attitude towards sin? Does it grieve you when you sin against God? It ought to grieve us when we grieve the Lord. And sin needs to be treated as being serious. Uh, so many times people, their prayers of confession are, oh, Lord, if I've committed any sin today, please forgive me. <sighs> Off the bed they go, you know. They're not even thinking about the seriousness. We need to have a self-evaluation and say, Lord, is there anything in my life that grieves me? Open my eyes. Help me to see. And uh, uh, please keep me from sin, presumptuous sin. David not only hated his sin for its consequences, but he also hated his sin because of its nature, that it was something that grieved the Lord. Anything that breaks fellowship with God ought to make us emotional. It ought to make us emotional, grieve over sin. Now, David ends in a rather interesting way, and some people think this is almost a contradiction. Here he is. He's been rebuked for his sins, and he is uh, convicted. He repents of his sins. He's under discipline. And then what does he do? He uh, talks about the sins of others, says he hates the sins of other people. Is that hypocritical or what? And we'd have to say, no, it's not hypocritical. It's uh, inspired text here. And I think it's actually very natural. Think of it this way. When you sin in rebellion, not unknown sins, because there's a lot of unknown sins that we need to confess before the Lord and say, Lord, please cover those as well and please show me those sins so I can grow out of them. But when there's rebellion, you're doing what you know is not right what you are doing is you are aligning yourselves with God's enemies. You're aligning yourself with Satan and his forces. And so when God brings repentance, what happens? Of necessity, you're going to be aligning with God and you're going to have a renewed hatred for your own flesh, the world, and the devil, right? You're going to automatically be a foot soldier, not against God's kingdom now, but you've got to be a foot soldier against Satan's kingdom. And so these verses are not a contradiction at all. Uh, they, they, they naturally and necessarily flow. Every time you sin, you're aligning yourself with God's enemies. Every time you truly repent, you're going to be aligning yourself with God who is at war with his enemies. And so there's automatically going to be a renewed fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. For example, there have been Christians who in the past have committed the sin of abortion. They have killed their babies. When they have repented of it, it is not only stirred up within them a hatred for their sin that they've engaged in, but a desire to see others turning from that sin as well. They want to be involved in making a difference in the world. And so it's a very fitting conclusion to repentance. Let me read you another verse, this one from Psalm 119, 
verse 136. David says, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. We must not be indifferent about the sins that are out there in America. Look at David's defiant confidence that God is going to win. And he is lining himself with God's purposes, uh, beginning in verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard me. Oh, excuse me, heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed subtly. And I think we could have far more victories in America if the church of Jesus Christ would wake up to its own sins and have a renewed hatred for the sins that are in our society. I think the two necessarily belong together. And I'd like to end with one more point to make this a perfect 12. The last misconception is thinking that we need to pretend to be perfect. Okay, the tendency is when people are convicted by the Lord, they see suddenly the horribleness of their sin, how wretched they are, and in their embarrassment, they confess to the Lord, but boy, they don't dare tell anybody else, you know, how vile their hearts are. Let me tell you something. The more you understand of your heart and other people's hearts, you know everybody's vile. Everybody's got that potential uh, of that, that sin in their, in their natures, but we have a tendency to want to cover that. What does David do? He writes down his sins. He gives it to the chief musician. He has all of Israel sing about it. Talk about embarrassing, man. Uh, they know about his sin with Bathsheba. They know about his murder of uh, Uriah the Hittite. They know about his fears. They know about his insecurities. They know of the times he's got broken fellowship with God. And why is it that he's willing to do this? Well, apart from the fact he's inspired and he couldn't help it, you know, God drove him along to write those scriptures. But I think he's a model for us in this. He was not ashamed to admit to others the defilement of his heart and of the Lord's grace to take him. And I think that was true for four reasons. First of all, he'd already repented, so there was no longer any need to hide the fact that there was sin. Yes, there's sin, and I've repented of it, and I hate it. Anything that people will point at him, any accusations or arrows that Satan might throw at him, he says, you're right, I'm a sinner. In fact, there's probably more, far more sins that I've repented of than you even know about. And so it didn't bother him. He knows he's repented and the Lord has forgiven. Second, he was secure in his love and in his sonship and that enabled him, his acceptance by the Father enabled him not to worry whether other people accepted him or didn't accept him. He found his security in the Lord. Third, he knew everybody else was a sinner too. Now they might not admit it, right? And uh, they might be railing against him for what a dirty, rotten scoundrel he was. But he knows they're sinners too, and deep down they know it. They're just trying to puff themselves up. And so it doesn't bother him that they know that he's a sinner because they know that they're sinners as well. Fourth, David did not want to be a prideful hypocrite. He wanted to let others know not only about his victories and his triumphs, but his defeats and the times that he was fearful and the times that he had blown it. And I want our congregation to have that kind of an honesty, that kind of a of an openness as well where we recognize yes we are utterly unworthy of god and of all of the blessings that he gives to us but praise jesus it's through christ that we receive those blessings he is worthy and so god's woodshed is for our good it's for god's glory and it really is designed to bring joy into our lives and i challenge you to examine your lives number one to see if you are in the faith because if the lord has received you as a child, he guarantees his love and he guarantees that that love is going to bring discipline. And uh, I, I charge you to be very quick to repent. So many times, I remember when I was growing up, I was just so slow. There were two sins that took me 
three years of fighting with the Holy Spirit before I was willing to admit those sins, to do restitution and to deal with them. And I was miserable, miserable for three years. The reason I didn't want to repent of those sins, well, I repented to God. I said, please, Lord, don't make me tell them. I wanted to repent to the Lord. And the reason I was so miserable is because I was trying to be happy, right? It's so ironic. I thought these people would think so poorly of me and I was so insecure that I said, I can't tell them, Lord. It, it, it just ruined my life. Here I am, a Bible school student, and I'm going to admit that I cheated on a 12th grade exam and that I stole something from the potato bin. Uh, it just, it troubled me so much and it was just prideful, prideful, sinful arrogance in my heart. And so here I am trying to pursue happiness in my own way when all the time God's saying, I want your joy, I want your joy. And if you will only repent and repent quickly, you will enter into the joy of the Lord. And so please, brothers and sisters, don't hide out. Enter into the joy of the Lord by honoring his discipline. Father God, you are a good God. You are a good disciplinarian. You're a consistent disciplinarian. In fact, our fatherhood, needs to be modeled after your fatherhood. Help us, Father, to be consistent and loving in our discipline of our children, to not allow our children to whine and to disobey and constantly warn, but to have first-time obedience with them. Because, Father, we know that how we model our children are going to go, grow up to think this is reflecting of you. And what a blasphemy it is, Father, when in our parenting we fail to reflect the glories of your discipline. Father, help us to value your discipline, to submit to it, to love it, to find joy as we quickly repent and find the reduction of those disciplines in our lives. Father, you are a good God. We love you. And we desire, Father, to value the disciplines that you bring. May we do so through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the illumination of our minds, and through the subduing of our sinful passions, our insecurities, or whatever it is that hinders us from entering into the joy of the Lord that you have purchased with for us through the blood of your Son. And so, Father, we pray for you to enable us to not just be hearers that go out and forget this, like those who look in a mirror and then leave. But, Father, as we see our lives reflected in the mirror, may you do a profound work in our lives, helping us to be hearers and doers and...